contrarians. They're trouble. At least, they're trouble in structured organizations. Contrarians seem to always take the stance in opposition to the status quo. They're more likely to have an authority complex, not because they don't like to be told what to do, but because authority figures are more likely to do things the way things have always been done. Contrarians are the but-maybes in your of-courses. They come up with the exceptions to your rules. It's hard for contrarians. They believe that you don't get it every bit as much as you believe that they don't get it. They see things as they are and have an unhealthy disregard for tradition. It's hard for businesses to find a place for contrarians, but when they do find their place, the results can be incredible. Think Steve Jobs. He was kicked out of the company he founded before returning to it at a desperate hour. And maybe this is when we should listen to contrarians in those desperate hours. Welcome to Intended Consequences, a podcast from Conversion Sciences. I'm Brian Massey, and I believe that anyone is capable of using behavioral science to get the results their business needs. It delivers intended consequences, and I'll teach you how to harness it. I think that was probably one of the first inklings of, hey, this marketing stuff could actually be a good route for me to take if I want to change the world because the clue train was all about that. It was all about disrupting the marketing conversation. Back in 1999, a group of contrarians saw a desperate hour approaching. A new tool had begun to change the fundamentals of communication, commerce, and expression. The internet was shifting marketing so fundamentally that these contrarians believed that it would change the way buyers buy and businesses sell. Confused businesses saw the internet as just another broadcasting channel, a place for their crafted ads and manipulative marketing. The contrarians felt businesses really needed to get a clue, to climb on board the train that had already left the station and was headed for the future. So in the spirit of Martin Luther, who launched the Protestant Revolution by nailing 95 theses on the door of a Catholic church, they nailed their 95 theses on the door of the Church of Ideas, the World Wide Web. The Clue Train Manifesto was immensely influential to me when it came out in 1999. Yes, left to my own devices, I am a contrarian. My contrarian bent has cost me more than one job and even a few friendships. But I found my place during a desperate hour. Be mindful of contrarians in positions of power. It was during a conversation with a new friend, Tara Hunt, that I found a fellow Clue Train contrarian. Tara is the CEO of marketing strategy agency Truly and is launching Flywheel, a resource for DIY marketers. Honestly, I hadn't thought about the Clue Train Manifesto in years. When I read it now, it seems obvious. So ingrained is it in my psyche. So I was glad to rediscover it, and I recorded it for you on this podcast. You'll find it in the next episode. Tara and I reminisced about this amazing document and looked back on its impact. Did businesses learn the lessons of the Clue Train Manifesto? This conversation took so many turns that we split it into two parts. In part one, we start off talking about what the Clue Train Manifesto was about In part two, we look at social media, which was nothing like it is today when the Clue Train Manifesto was created. Settle in and listen, my contrarian friends. 
So Tara, we were introduced by uh, our mutual friend, Karen Shulman Dupuy, and I was at a conference with her and, and I think I was complaining about the fact that my blog had been taken over by my SEO people. And so everything had a purpose. It had to answer a very specific question. And I would write and they would come back and say, that's too much. We don't need to talk about that. We don't need to talk about that. So it became a little bit dry for me. And I said, do you know someone who can help me add a little more charisma back into my marketing? And you're the name that she dropped. And as always, I'm fascinated to know what your origin story was, what brought you to this place, which we'll talk more about, um, or what you're well, welcome to talk about. How did you get here? What, uh, what has been your path? That is a very good question. And sometimes I ask myself the same one. <laughs> How did I get here, really? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I'm not going to go back to the humble beginnings uh, in a small town in Alberta, Canada. Um, but I will go back to, you know, entering marketing and how I got here in particular. I came out of university with a degree in uh, women's studies and um, cultural studies, <laughs> which does not necessarily sound very conducive to marketing. But I will tell anybody who challenges me that my degree has contributed so much to how I see the world and um, how I approach marketing in general, mostly because it is all about uh, behavioral, like cultural studies and behavioral sciences and understanding culture, understanding humans, understanding bias, understanding how we frame the world uh, sometimes in ways that don't work in our favor. And all of that brought me to becoming a more astute marketer, um, I do believe. So early on in my career, um, I actually was not wanting to go into marketing. I was uh, wanting to go into nonprofit work, which you know would have aligned pretty nicely with my degree. You have a, you definitely have a, a bent or an interest in people. And uh, this is very interesting to me. Because I think this underpins a lot of us. I was never drawn to that side of things. But I think the reason I've stayed in this instead of being a programmer is because I'm really interested in people. And so it doesn't surprise me. But now I'm thinking like, oh, should we be hiring more of those? Yeah, well, liberal arts majors, right? That there was a time, you know, where they were really discouraging people about going into liberal arts. And now I think more and more uh, organizations are looking back towards people in liberal arts because you you learn critical thinking skills and you are studying people all the time. You're studying, um, you know, I call myself a uh, digital anthropologist and it's because, you know, that is what I learned how to do. I learned to do uh, participatory research. I learned how to observe and participate and understand cultures. And that all goes in towards what we're doing, whether well, there's data driven, you know, that's what you're looking for data, you are looking for, like, what people are doing, and why are they doing it, like trying to figure that out, right? You know, all the way to, um, you know, more, the the qual stuff, right into the uh, one looking at, you know, patterns uh, in behaviors uh, with people and how how attitudes are changing and trends are emerging and that sort of things. I'm curious what it was that, that made you, because your first statement or your statement a moment ago was, I didn't really want to go into marketing. What's that barrier there that makes, 
I don't know, marketing, corporate America, um, capitalism seem kind of nefarious? Is that a, a cultural thing or just something you didn't prefer? Yeah, I think when people think about marketing, they think of it as a lesser, something that you go into to be selfless and you're not going to change the world through marketing. And uh, yeah, I know. And actually, I've changed my mind. And I think that was my original attitude about marketing was um, people that go into marketing, it's very, uh, it's about selling stuff. It's about capitalism it's about all the things that you know a cultural studies major should be railing against and um in fact over the years i've completely taken a reversal on that and now i think okay well if i can make marketing because we all buy right we're all consumers at the end of the day even people that are like i don't like shopping they you still consume right so if i can make that relationship uh, more beneficial for everyone, including the consumer themselves um, and the environment and you know, the, the, the world around us, then um, I can change the world. And because it's something that everybody gets involved in, it's actually pretty impactful. So yeah, I completely changed my mind about that. It, but it wasn't in the beginning. In the beginning, I was pulled into it because uh, everywhere I went, they said, oh, you know, you know, the online world, you know, the digital world, can you help us with this or that, you know, starting with, you know, search engine marketing way back when, um, and building websites and that sort of thing. Um, you know, they wanted a digital brochure or they wanted to be able to publish their, their quarterly or annual reports online in interactive ways. And they would come. What time frame was this? I, I don't want to Get you in trouble, but uh, that would have been the late nineties, like ninety. Uh, I think ninety nine. The golden late nineties. <laughs> that was one of my favorite times too. Oh my god! And I just realized, like that—that's over twenty years ago. I just realized that in this moment, and now I feel really old. <laughs> eh, couple decades. It's still a couple of something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So back then, it was pretty rudimentary, but there weren't very many of us that like knew about this stuff and people didn't care about my liberal arts degree at that point they were like oh you know the web so we're gonna hire you and you're gonna help us figure this stuff out you know and so that's kind of how how that evolved and everybody wanted people with you know our skills uh back then now i mean it's kind of innate everybody you know was born with the web around them but at that point it was having a computer at your desk was rare let alone you know, being connected to the internet. Yeah. And you know, the, I think the late nineties was exciting because technology was still changing really fast, but not nearly as fast as it. I mean, today in marketing, we have so much all the time coming at us. I think things were changing fast back then compared to TV and radio and, and cable, but I guess there was this time where we, we got to be more thoughtful or we get, we got to say like, this internet thing is coming along and how we use it is going to have ramifications for our culture. I'm, I mean, the thing that pops to my mind is the Clue Train Manifesto. I wonder how many of my listeners have read the Clue Train Manifesto. Classic. Yeah, I think that was probably one of the first inklings of, hey, this marketing stuff could actually be a good route for me to take if I want to change the world because the clue train was all about that. It was all about disrupting 
the marketing conversation to say, listen, um, you know, the whole, so it was written by, um, just for your listeners, it, as you said, they may not understand or know who the, what the Clue Train Manifesto was. It was, it was like an online, like, well, manifestos were big in the nineties, by the way. <laughs> P.S. <laughs> it was like everybody. You remember changethis.com? I think it's still around. Yeah, yeah. No, probably. Yeah, I hope so. Um, but like, yeah, the 90s was all about manifestos. And the clue train, I think, was, you know, written out of frustration by a group, uh, Doc Searles, David Weinberger, uh, Chris Locke, and oh boy, I've forgotten the last, uh, the last author. We'll have to put that, you'll have to put that in the... Um, uh, Rick Levine. Rick Levine, thank you. You know, it was a collaboration. It was really just a website with a whole bunch of points. And the first point, I think, was the one that set the stage. And a lot of people kind of got wrong for a bunch of years as far as the interpretation goes. But it, it's markets are conversations. And uh, it's saying you've been doing marketing wrong. It's it, it was early days talking about, okay, advertising is not marketing. It's interrupting people. It's getting in their face. It's it's not being, it's not relevant. It's not listening. Um, and the, we have this internet thing now, right? So here's this internet and people are having conversations and they're having conversations about you and your products. You know, people are asking all the time and they still, we still see this. There's a lot of evidence that says, you know, I go, oh, I need a new accountant. I need a new car. I need a new set of headphones, whatever it is. And I'm going to go to my networks and say, I've been, you know, I'm confused, uh, you know, help me make a choice or does anybody have a recommendation? And that's the conversation, right? Or even um, around just I, maybe I don't even know I have need headphones or I don't know I need something specific. And at this point, I need just to solve some problem. Like I need to solve this problem. And then people will say, oh, have you tried this software or have you uh, reached out to this person that, you know, you reached out to me because you had a problem. And Karen, bless her soul, uh, said, hey, uh, you should talk to Tara, right? That's markets or conversations. That is it in act, action right there. And so this amazing manifesto uh, was in play and a light bulb went off for me. It was, that was the late 90s. Um, and it said, it's not about interrupting people. It's not about some glossy magazine ad or billboard or do you think that that the markets or conversations falls on the ears of uh, this generation of marketers as like duh no no kidding like how many people buy something even on Amazon without checking the ratings and reviews? I I, I still think the message is not fully understood even by people who have been raised within it like this was one of my my early bugaboos that I had in marketing was and I used to call myself and this is like a terrible thing to call call yourself uh I, I called myself a pinko marketer and and stay with me here uh it's not I had I did have a lot of people who uh were like Tara Tara you are so bad at naming things but um <laughs> Uh, the whole reason was like, it was like a little play on um, that I was like, pinkos were communist sympathizers and I was a, a customer sympathizer. Oh, uh, so that was, <laughs> I get it. That was the I joke it. and it's bad joke. Anyway, I rebranded it and, and it went better. But yeah, so the idea is that like, as marketers, we're humans first. 
we are consumers. We participate in those conversations all the time. We understand that we don't like to be interrupted. In fact, a lot of marketers I know like are the best at skipping that ad on YouTube or whatever uh, to get to the video that they want to see. Uh, marketers understand the tricks. They're, way, they're able to get around it. So why aren't they empathizing with the customers that they're trying to get in front of and understanding that those being those market, those markets are conversations. And so it's really important to join in those conversations. And, you know, part of me chalks this up, chalks it up to laziness. Um, but also like there's a whole system, a whole legacy system in marketing that was put into place that likes to deal in volume rather than in relationships. And, uh, that unfortunately got sort of transferred onto this amazing new platform that allowed us to do more listening. You know, there was, people weren't going to be satisfied with, I had a conversation with a customer directly. Unless it turns into a great story like Southwest or Dell or, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you can promote it and then reach, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people after that point, sure. But um, that one-on-one, those relationships, uh, I remember early days of social media. So this would have been like mid-2000s, so 2005 or so. People were excited about what was happening um, in that, you know, these different, you know, social channels were coming out and blogs were growing and all this stuff. But everybody kept saying the same thing. Well, it's not very scalable. That was like everybody's big concern. And so all of uh, these companies, as they started to to grow, so I think Twitter came out in 2006 or yeah, 2006, you know, one of one of the within a year or two, they were all about, OK, how do we scale this? So put a lot of effort and energy into scaling these platforms rather than really educating or finding ways in which we could amplify those one on one conversations, which was what made platforms so powerful in the first place. Well, and it doesn't it doesn't really fund the development of those platforms either. They, you know, they're like, all right, let's have a great place for everybody to come and and chat and, you know, maybe we'll put a few ads on there. Whereas the major platforms are all, you know, the search engine platforms, social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, they're all uh, like, all right, we're going to make it really hard to advertise through conversations, which arguably I think our Clue Train Manifesto friends would have been happy if but our algorithms are going to be like if you like if you want to if you want to advertise or if you want to participate as a brand or a company if you want something predictable and measurable you now have to pay us to to show those in the streams yeah yeah and so here's a little piece of history uh, i'm not sure if you're fa- you're familiar with or your audience is familiar with but there was a time in so if face let's focus on facebook uh, there was a time, probably I, I would say like around uh, 2012, 13 maybe, um, where Facebook was actually becoming a really, really wonderful platform for interacting with your customers. There were enough tools in Facebook that allowed you actually to scale things a little bit better, you know, so you could, um, if you were listening and, you know, posting more stuff that was, uh, your audience was really into, like your customers were really into, and they were liking and commenting. You could have great conversations. And sure, you know, sometimes, it, you know, we got comment threads that were out of control. 
However, it was like a really nice, I thought there was like a really nice uh, balance going on where it was just scalable enough to have for companies to have a bunch of community managers that went in and like made sure that people were taking care of other people. You were joking back and forth. You were building this great rapport with, you know, and then Facebook saw this and was like, mm, no, no, we need to monetize it. <laughs> We can't have customers, we can't have companies getting too good at this social stuff. Like, no way, because that's not monetizable. So what they did is they changed their algorithm so that the newsfeed would no longer reward companies that were really good at content. So the so it used to be like, um, oh, what was like, it was called like, it was some sort of Facebook wall algorithm, there was like a great acronym and I can't remember, but we used to like track our score on that. And, you know, you were able to sometimes get up to reaching, if you had like a, I don't know, a hundred thousand followers, you could reach like 70% of them um, on that newsfeed because you were like rocking it with the content. And um, I was part of some of those early pages. And, you know, it was, you know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can make more and more engaging content so that people wanted to interact with us more so that we could keep really high in, you know, uh, in that visibility. Well, I do understand that Facebook at one point was like, okay, so people's feeds are like basically all brands and that may not be good for the long run. And I understand why you'd want to choke that off a bit, right? But they choked it down to, um, you know, the, they said this year it's going to be something like between uh, four and 5%, but next year it's going to be between zero to 1%. And then you're going to have to pay to, end up on that feed. And hey, uh, PS, here's our advice to you. Stop trying to be like a person and start, you know, making more ads because that's going to behoove you better. Well, if you're too much like a person, yeah, we're not going to approve those ads. They, you know, they need to be addy ads. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you need to be, you know, so like conversational things where, you know, you see this was still on Twitter with brands, like they'll kind of have fun with whatever the latest uh, pop culture trend is or whatever. They can still be kind of bantery in that way. But on, on Facebook where that was happening, they were like, no, they, it came to a halt because no longer could you post something, you know, if it wasn't Game of Thrones back then, but say just because it's a more modern uh, example, like if you were a brand and you were like, well, it's your, you know, our Game of Thrones pick is this and this and this, and that would get a lot, a lot of conversation going. It went from that to, you know, just like, buy our products. Oh, here's our benefits. Oh, your life will be better if you buy our products almost overnight. And as a, like, as a social content person and social content being the, the former and not the latter, right? The more of the, how do you have a conversation where the brand is a little bit more people-like, <laughs> a little bit more engaging, I just watched that with like, my heart was breaking as I was watching that because I was like, in this zone where I thought brands are finally getting it. The, the Clue Train Manifesto is coming 
to be like for real. These markets have conversations and this is excellent. We had CEOs who were like excited and wanting to like hopping on and being like, oh, can you give us some feedback? These are some ideas that we're having. Like people, like these companies were really getting interested in getting more and more collaborative with their customers. It was just, I don't know, it felt like there was a beautiful thing happening. And then... Well, thesis number three is conversations among human beings sound human. They are conducted in a human voice. And I think that goes to what you're talking about. Now, interestingly enough, thesis number two is markets consist of human beings, not demographic sectors. But, you know, the tools available in Facebook and YouTube these days are like, it, they have taken us completely back. We think completely in terms of lookalike audiences and, and sound alike audiences and any audience that we can assemble. And so to an extent, they've taken it back the other direction. Companies, I think, prefer that. They like to be able to say, all right, I'm going to spend $10,000 and I expect to get so many people visit my pages and um, I expect to spend about this much per. And, you know, that's helpful in commerce. But let me ask you this. If it's so hard to, if it's so hard to participate in the, the the conversations how come ostensibly and there seems to be a lot of evidence of this russia is doing such a great job of influencing elections are they buying ads too i don't think so what's the difference there well they're um posing as people that's that's the biggest difference right so um the uh, they're the actually i find the the russian uh, misinformation campaign that was run during the last election was absolutely fascinating from a behavioral science point of view. It was brilliant, like absolutely like ahead of its time, uh, brilliant. And um, not that I hate to admit it, but like it was actually, we had, we were working with uh, a company uh, just right after sort of things were coming to bear around that. And, we actually had come up with um, a strategy that we would create kind of, well, not like fake accounts to spread bad misinformation, but to create a little more Jimmy Kimmel style, I guess. If you know what Jimmy Kimmel does, sometimes Jimmy Kimmel will play with sort of these ideas of uh, creating caricatures and stuff on the internet uh, to plant viral seeds and see if people pick them up naturally. Um, and uh, so we, we were actually, uh, we had put together a proposal for a client based on creating all these different characters from around the world and sort of develop their backstories. And they were going to start to talk about this because um, it was for a game company, like the, the, some of the theories behind this game uh, company. Anyways, it was, Gonna, you know, it was really based a lot on the brilliance of this Russian campaign. And it is because if you are a person and you sign up and you can't use bots for it because their algorithms will detect too much posting or, or computer uh, driven uh, people. So you need to have human beings behind. And that was also what was brilliant about the uh, Russian infiltration is they had uh, office buildings full of people that they would hire to go log into their fake account and um, they had a persona that they would enact, you know, during their shift where, you know, they were to write 
certain stories and then post and pitch certain stories and, and, and start to get friends and, and build their networks on these various different social platforms and like post these stories so that people would see it. And because they're people and not companies, they're not pages, they're not media companies per se. When they posted this, their quote unquote friend in, you know, whichever state, would see that this post and be like, oh, what, you know, is that true? And because you had sort of built a bit of a rapport online, even if they never saw you, you could be like a 83-year-old dude um, in, um, in the Ukraine and then or in Russia and then have like your avatars like some 24-year-old hot babe, <laughs> you know, like, and they don't know because they've never met you in person um, and saying that you live, I don't know, in Utah. And uh, you're posting, you're like, yeah, oh, I saw some other stories about this. And, and because you had that rapport, you were able to get real people then to uh, share those posts. So there was that side of it. And it's because they used, they didn't try to use companies. They used real people personas, real people uh, that created this whole backstory. And it's, it's easy enough to do that. It's very hard for Facebook to detect who's real and who's not on that side of things unless they like force you to upload a birth certificate, which they don't do, thank God. So they, they had, that, was, that was part of them. I mean, their, whole, their, their strategy goes way beyond that, which I could go totally into. But um, it, that was where they were able to get through um, the noise. Just because they look like people. So is there, are there any brands that come to mind that are able to act as a, a, a good citizen of social media without advertising? Uh, they're providing human face out there right now. Well, I mean, so he's had a bunch of uh, mishaps, but Tesla and Elon Musk. Now, Elon Musk is a person. Elon Musk is a very human person. He does a wonderful job. He, he, he understands and uses social in a way that um, has given him more PR for that company than you could ever buy <laughs> because he is so human, because he drunk tweets, you know, like he does all the things that um, I think he's been curbed on that now. I think they take away his phone when he's drinking, but uh, especially his board. But, you know, uh, when he was, he was being so human, he was being so candid. He, he is himself and interacts with people and has fights with people online and does everything that he needs to do to like, well, I mean, he's a human. It's not he's not putting on any act for it. And if you go to like any of his like SpaceX or Tesla, they're regular company uh, companies. They're a little looser than I think um, some tech companies out there. And so they benefit from that. But they really benefit from having real human beings. And I think that's how a lot of companies could break through all of this is how is enabling and empowering more of their employees to take up those uh, the the helm of being an ambassador for the company years ago, and I used them as uh, a shining example in my book before everybody else did. I'd like to add. <laughs> Congratulations! Thank you. Zappos was this company, right? Zappos. Uh, Tony Shea, uh, the CEO, did the same thing, right? He he was one of the first people. One of the first CEOs that was like, you know, um, I think this would be good for me to get online and, 
and have conversations with people and listen and, and chat back and forth. You know, so, you know, he was a shining example, but then he, he would take this further. He was like, it's not just about me. Um, I'm going to make sure that everybody that works at Zappos knows that they should be empowered to speak for the company. We trust them. And uh, so encouraged a lot of that. And there were a lot of people at Zappos who became online ambassadors and really helped grow the brand online. He didn't force anybody, didn't, you know, you have to do this, but, you know, gave people time and uh, tools to do it. And that was really good for Zappos. And, you know, when we are trying to get testing volume up or when we want to test something, you know, words and copy and how you present yourself, uh, your value proposition, so, so, so important. I mean, you can change button colors and words on buttons and move things around the page only so much before you bump up against the, you know, the good or bad that is delivered by your words and your value proposition. Brands see themselves as very fragile. Like if anything bad happens, if even a small percentage of our audience sees a test that is a negative test, that it's going to destroy the brand. And that it's, it's absolutely amazing. And so we end up locked in making mistakes. There was just a, a new story. Uh, I'm not going to name the airline because I'm not sure which one it was. They've each had their thing, but what they call tone deaf. Whenever somebody says, oh, this brand is tone deaf, it's because they're only saying what's safe. There are, number one, data is supposed to allow us to take more chances. And number two, take more chances because that's really the only way you're going to win in these markets. Otherwise, Elon Musk and uh, Tony Say are not spokespeople. They're something different. So it's not like the old hire somebody, hire a celebrity who everybody knows and let them talk for us. It is, uh, it's much, much closer to the brand. Um, and it's amazing that in 2020, we're still talking about Zappos. You know, he took so many chances and it was a great success story. Yeah. And I think what's happened, I think with Tesla, and there's like some, of course, the younger brands, fast food brands, that sort of thing. Um, they do a pretty good job and there's definitely a lot of good examples but, you know, if we go back to market, you know, the Clue Train Manifesto and, you know, people interacting with people, it's it really at the end of the day, I, that's the most effective social strategy, because even uh, in cases where there has been a brand that has been particularly good at social. So say it was like the Arby's hat joke with uh, Pharrell Williams when he wore the crazy hat and he's like, for out and there, Arby's is like for out like in real time. For out, we would like our hat back or whatever, and people were like applauding. Well, everybody wants to know who that person is. Everybody knows it. They don't think, oh, that brand is clever. They think, who's that great clever person behind it? And they want to know. And we, you know, at the end of the day, people connect with people. And not saying that brands can't just uh, loosen up and be a little bit more social and. Um, stop, you know, worrying so much. And they do. And, and we encounter this all the time. In fact, we're building like a, a brand uh, personality workshop that the opening of it is all about like, let go. Like safe is actually where you're not safe online. Safe is your dead zone. You need to be able to be provocative. It's just depending on how you want to be provocative online, right? Like safe is not safe. <laughs> 
We need to come up with an acronym for that. There you go. But it's like you should there should be a way in which you are um, you're standing for something, right? If you the whole you know if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything, anything, right? Like or the if you if you certain brands that are out there that have taken a stand, like you know once over and over again, we hear like Patagonia, for instance, as a brand who's taken a stand and made some controversial. Uh, positions, including like anti-Trump positions or Nike uh, putting Colin Kaepernick, his face like right on an ad after creating so much controversy. And um, yeah, okay, it ticks off a whole bunch of people, but then it also creates this huge loyalty with those who believe in that point of view and believe in that stand. And there is a warmth and a love that is that has grown for that brand, right? Where, where when you're not, when you're just playing it safe, people are like, meh, that brand, you know, is generic, come and go, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so my audience is probably sitting here going, yeah, yeah, I get that. I, I believe that. But the powers that control the brand typically are like, oh, it's so fragile. Don't, we don't want to change the color in this situation. We don't want to do anything to this. What does a marketer do? So how do we research our, our audience enough to be able to go to uh, our boss or the people writing the checks or to our business owner or for the business owner conjure up the, the, the courage to go out and say, all right, I'm going to let someone be authentic or I'm going to put an authentic voice on this. What does a marketer put together that says, oh, I've done research and I found out that our audience really wants to be pissed off every now and then. Do you have a solution? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's data is going to really help you um, in case studies and um, that sort of thing. However, um, even with data, there's a lot of fear. And what we always try to do is, build a bit of a case like with baby steps internally like it's just like boiling the frog right you don't want to throw throw them into the hot water you what you do want you like turn up the heat little by little <laughs> and sort of give them a taste of you know the benefits of that um you know find ways in which you can show them, you know, here's what we're going to do, which is usually something that you think is really bland, but for them, it's radical. And we're going to record the results of this. And this is our goal. And if we don't meet it, we'll like abandon ship and you'll be able to almost always confidently go back to them and go, wow, that really did well. Like it did way better than we even thought. So then they're willing a little bit by little bits to loosen up the reins. And we see this, you know, with, we have this happen with clients too. And I, I understand a little bit of the anxiety around brands, you know, doing something wrong. There's so many factors that are at play that can actually, uh, you know, when you're, when you're, with everything you do affects a livelihood of thousands or tens of thousands of people and their paychecks every day, you worry right you i mean i have i have eight employees and i worry every day you know i i censor myself a little bit or you know try to um act in a certain way or 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 do thing do things that i feel are a little more conservative than usual and if my employees are listening i worry too 
<laughs> there you go. But yeah, we that. don't because we, we care about keeping them em, employed. Um, at the end of the day, if it was just us, we could be total cowboys. In fact, I have been in the past. Um, but you know, now I'm. Other people are worrying, uh, are relying on me for their livelihood. And if you think about that, times you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, even, you start to really worry. Um, And you have shareholders, all these people are around you, like eyeballs on you, like with the don't F up kind of look at on their faces at you. And so, you know, they take what they think is the safe route. Um, But then, you know, you look back years later, and you're like, wow, that safe route actually flatlined. When you get back to the office, contrarians are very important during times of change. They're often one step ahead of the herd. Times are changing. Are you a marketing contrarian? Well, here's a quick test. Listen to my reading of the Clue Train Manifesto. It's in the Intended Consequences feed, so you'll see it next. Uh, or go to cluetrain.com and read the theses there. Make note of how you feel as you read. Are you feeling excited or just meh? If you're excited, you're probably a contrarian. Do you feel a sense of hopelessness as you read? Then you might be a contrarian trapped inside a role that is too rigid for you. If you felt hopeful, you may be in a place that works great for you. Beware of contrarians in positions of power. I believe that data gave my contrarian desires the power to change businesses. Can data do this for you? Can experimenting do this for you? Keep listening. Now go science something.